Father, may this time of revival be an encouragement to our own souls as we seek to pray for a renewed revival in our own day. And we pray you'll especially be with our brother Tom, that uh, you will help him to uh, bring out these truths to us uh, so that our souls will be enriched this morning. So we pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Are you ready? Good morning. A couple of days ago, uh, we were having a birthday party over at uh, Roberto Soriano's, and a brother brought it to my attention that they were going to do a personal study, didn't tell me how many were there, on John Owen's glory of Christ, which I said immediately, yeah, I'd like to be involved in that. And uh, so I decided that the only way to properly give that its uh, proper emphasis is to narrate it. So it's very, very helpful for me in light of studying revival, not to do this just historically, but everything is to be done that we could focus on the glory of Christ. When I taught on the Kentucky Revival in 2018 in the spring, I just finished teaching on Pilgrim's Progress and asked the pastors in Grand Rapids since I had a four or five weeks left to the end of the year, could I do a series on revival? And I talked about the Kentucky and the Cane Ridge Revivals and all of the phenomena that was with that and it was just so much information in the day though I had a friend in California that was taking these recordings and putting them on YouTube and as a result it had a pretty large audience so the radio program which is a national radio program called the world and everything in it had discovered my teaching on the Cane Ridge revival and used part of the audio for their history segment but as I was thinking about this in the last couple of days, it's the Cane Ridge Revival in 1801. The preacher being Barton W. Stone in a place, Paris, Kentucky, that has had so much of the emphasis. And to me, the more interesting, at least as far as I'm concerned, is the one that took place down in Logan County, which is just west of Bowling Green, Kentucky. And I'm going to just teach on that this morning. And there's a really important application that I want to make here that it's going to take me a little bit of a while to present to you. So by 10 o'clock, no matter where I am in the study, I want to focus on what's really the priority behind all of the history of revival. Well, in the dictionary of the North Carolina biography, looking at the story of uh, 
James McGrady. Who was James McGrady? He was born in Pennsylvania in 1763. Redstone Presbytery gave him license to preach when he was about 30 years of age. His education was finished under Dr. McMillan, the founder of the literary and theological school that ultimately grew into Cannonsburg College, the first institution of the kind west of the Allegheny Mountains. He was married, James McGrady, in 1790 and a pastor later of a congregation in Orange County, North Carolina. Thing to keep in your mind as you hear this man's biography is how God was fitting this man to put him in one of the roughest places in America. And you cannot appreciate what happened here unless you realize how Kentucky was really the Wild West in 1800. In fact, when Daniel Boone had been there a number of years before, it was recorded that his son Nathan was the first recorded white person ever uh, in Kentucky. Uh, most of it was Indians. And this is where James McGrady was being put together and formed to be the great pastor of this revival. He went to Knoxville, Tennessee for a few months, and then he came to Kentucky and there were so few preachers, he actually had to pastor three churches at once, the Gasper River, Red River, and Muddy River congregations. So that's the overview. But about the year 1790, McGrady married and became the pastor of a congregation in Orange County. This is still in North Carolina. And one of the best historical accounts is called Sketches of North Carolina by William Foote. Also, the author of uh, Sketches from Virginia. But he labored with wanted zeal and often with great success. In his delivery, he was always solemn and sometimes very animated from the commencement of his message. Generally, he began very calm and waxed warmer as he progressed, and any application of his message was always fervent. He avoided metaphysical discussions. He preached a plain word of God with much point and great plainness and effect. To his hearers, he often seemed a son of thunder and always a warm, experimental, Calvinistic preacher. But in the day, there was also a pastor named William Hodge, and Barton W. Stone, who was used in the Cambridge Revival in 1801, was in the Orange County presbytery, but was actually converted under Hodge because Hodge was more of the uh, gospel emphasis. Uh, it seemed more like McGrady was being fashioned to go into a wilderness where people were afraid to go and bring the thunders of Mount Sinai originally to these people. But it's Stony Greek creek where he was pastoring there were families of wealth and influence that had become loose in their religious habits and morals these opposed mr mcgrady's course and preaching and proceeded from one step of opposition to another until their dislike exceeded all bounds and this gives you an idea how god had fashioned him and these things didn't affect him 
Some of these, this family, during one of their nights of revelry, made a bonfire of McGrady's pulpit and left in the clerk's seat a letter written with blood for the pastor, warning him that unless he desisted from his way of preaching, their vengeance would not be satisfied with the destruction of the pulpit and his person would not be inviolate. In other words, they were threatening his person. McGrady, as might have been expected, not in the least intimidated by the burning of the pulpit or the letter, continued to preach as usual, and the opposition confined to a few people finally died away. They left. But I know from memory that his sermon was on Matthew 23 about in uh, the Jews killing the prophets and Christ would have gathered them together, their children together, but they would not. That was his message to them. But he was totally undaunted by what had happened. But in 1796, he finally left North Carolina for Kentucky. And I just want to mention, because that picture is up there, his sermon called The Sinner's Guide to Hell. This is what this guy was made of. And I studied the sermon, and his purpose was to work upon people's mercenary motives and to say, well, since you are bent on going to hell anyway, I'm going to give you directions. And I'm reading this sermon, and I decide this is in 2018, to narrate it. And it was the first time I ever remembered narrating a sermon, and already I'd been narrating for 33 years, that I had to back up the recording and start over because I started laughing. Not because the sermon was funny, but because I was so shocked that this man would employ this way of reaching his audience. So in 1796, he was in East Tennessee for a while, but then God began to call him to uh, Kentucky. It doesn't. We don't have a lot of information on how he came up with that decision or why he ended up in Logan County. But the Kentucky had become a state in 1792. Before that, it was part of Virginia. So he gets there in 1796. It's such a wilderness in the state. It had only been a state for four years. The infidelity that affected the colonial states was not known here, but it was a rugged wilderness. Only 27 churches could be found in the whole state, so when he got there, as I said, he pastored three churches at one time. On a trip to Tennessee, and this gives you an idea of what he went to, Francis Asbury, the Methodist, had already been there and said, when I reflect that not one in a hundred came here to get religion, but rather to get plenty of good land, I think it will be well if some or many do not eventually lose their souls, end quote. From the history of the Presbyterian Church in Kentucky, the population of the state advanced with incredible rapidity and soon outstripped the supply of the means of grace. Worldly mindedness, infidelity, and dissipation threatened to deluge the land and sweep away all vestiges of piety and morality. The rising generation were growing up in almost universal ignorance of religious obligation. The elder church members were gradually dying off and were replaced by no recruits from the ranks of the young. Except a little Goshen here and there, the shadow of night was gathering over the land. 
The area, and this was in Logan County, was considered by many to be the most wicked place in the entire country. It was known locally as Rogue's Harbor. Other common names for it were the Devil's Den, the Outlaw's Haven, and Satan's Stronghold. So many desperados and ungodly people had settled there that when an attempt was made by vigilantes to run these outlaws out, the outlaws were so many that they instead burned the homes of some of the vigilantes, killed others, and finally forced them and their families to flee the area. James McGrady got several hundred people, most of them living in North Carolina, to sign his Carolina Covenant, promising to pray and intercede with God until such time as he would send true revival to Logan County. This excitement commenced in the Gasper River congregation where he was, one of the three congregations, and extended from there to the other congregations of Muddy and Red Rivers in Logan County, all at that time under the pastoral charge of McGrady. McGrady was one of the sons of thunder of Boanerges, both in manner and matter, and an uncompromising reprover of sin in every shape. The curses of the law lost none of their severity in falling from his lips. The fierceness of his invectives derived additional terror from the hideousness of his visage. What do they mean, the hideousness of his visage? And I had seen this on two different accounts from people that teach on revival, one being the late Edwin Orr, who probably died around the year 1989, that they said that he actually was so ugly, it's kind of rude, but that was what attracted people to his preaching. And Edwin Orr said that the uh, hideousness of his visage, to use this term here, was what drew people to hear him. They said, a man that looks like that certainly must have something to say. But a letter from James McGrady's own pen reads, Logan County, Kentucky, October 28, 1801. In the month of May 1797, which was the spring after I came to this country, the Lord graciously visited Gasper River Congregation, an infant church under my charge. The doctrines of regeneration, faith, and repentance, which I uniformly preach, seem to call the attention of the people to a serious inquiry. During the winter, the question was often proposed to me, is religion a sensible thing? If I were converted, would I feel it and know it? And may, as I said before, the work began. A woman who had been a professor in full communion in the church found her old hopes false and delusive. She was struck with deep conviction and in a few days was filled with joy and peace and believing. She immediately visited her friends and relations from house to house, warned them of their danger in a most solemn and faithful manner, and pleaded with them to repent and seek religion. This as a mean was accompanied with a divine blessing to the awakening of many. About this time, the ears of all in that congregation seemed to be open to receive the word preached. Almost every sermon was accompanied with the power of God to the awakening of sinners. In the summer of 1798, at the administration of the Sacrament of the Supper in July on Monday, the Holy Spirit graciously poured out His Spirit. Now, these were old covenantal Presbyterians, so they didn't have a single communion. They had a communion season. There would be a number of days that would lead up to the final receiving of the bread and the wine, perhaps a week long, and often it drew people in and they... Uh, came to be a part of this. In the year 1800, when an excitement commenced, which for influence, duration, and extent, 
has been unequaled in the southern and western states and as pervading and resistless and as fertile in novelties as that which spread over the middle and eastern states between the years 1740 and 1750 in which Edwards had preached. The first laborers in this work were McGrady, William Hodge, and McGee. Previous to the June Sacrament and his Red River congregation, McGrady was greatly depressed on account of the state of religion in his own charge and in the congregation around him. Now, if you go down to Logan County, you can uh, find this place. They've rebuilt what was the Red River church building in the day and that sign is there so they will give you a history down in Logan County of what had happened here. The effect of the elders conversation on McGrady, they had a conversation with him and it was cheering, awakened anticipations of success like the dream heard by Gideon in the enemy's camp. These brethren just mentioned assisted at the June meeting in 1800 and before the close, the most wonderful excitement, that was the word they used in those days for revival or awakening and excitement commenced. Of this McGrady says, but the year 1800 exceeds all that eyes ever beheld on earth. In June, the sacrament was administered at Red River. On Monday, multitudes were struck under awful conviction. The cries of the distress filled the whole house. From this place it spread that summer wherever meetings for continued preaching were held in Kentucky, Tennessee, and Ohio, and ultimately over the whole South and West. And it says they were struck under awful conviction. Ian Murray describes such scenes as this, as he taught on revival, that it resembles, resembles a battlefield. You're looking at a battlefield with these people struck with conviction where numerous soldiers are lying on the ground as if they had each been shot. While Mr. Hodge was preaching, a woman at the extreme end of the house, unable to repress the violence of her emotions, gave vent to them in loud cries. During the intermission which succeeded the services, the people showed no disposition to leave their seats, but wept in silence all over the house. People came in crowds to the meetings that were held to satisfy the demands for preaching on horseback. So word started to get out about this revival in wagons and on foot and remained on the ground for days and continued engaged day and night in religious services with little intermission, listening to sermons and exhortations and uniting in prayer and praise. Well, I would say, though, it's really important to keep in mind that some of these people came out of curiosity. It was a rugged lifestyle. It was very difficult labor. And some people who heard of this would come because they needed some kind of excitement. They wanted to see something different. But they become, became um, quite a large crowd. And it was the beginning of what the camp meetings were in those days. But I need to define something really quickly before I go on, and that is the word sympathy. In a revival, so you guys know the term bottlenecking. You're driving down the road, there's been a big crash, you find yourself turning and looking at this, it really affects the emotions. Or if I was to stand up here and yawn before you, it would cause in you a reaction that you would imitate 
it's what's called sympathy and even the animals will show some signs of this if one of their herd uh, passes away. Well, in a revival, it has to be checked. And this is what Asa Hell Nettleton learned in the Second Great Awakening from what went wrong in the First Great Awakening, that when a lady would be at, say, the back of this congregation and the Holy Spirit had come in his manifest presence and they were really affected with it and she would cry out, they often would take her to a separate building called an inquiry room to counsel her because her crying and her shrieks and so on might have an effect upon the crowd that is called sympathy or mere animal emotion. And during this revival, some things went wrong where Methodist preachers would come in and they would work upon these feelings. And one of these Methodist preachers, McGee, went through the crowd at one time and just started shouting and working everybody up into a frenzy. And these are the things that good Presbyterian pastors try to check. But anyway, the first camp meeting was held in the vicinity of Gasper River in 1800. And people were coming from 40, 50, 100 miles. A regular encampment was formed. Some occupied tents while others slept in covered wagons. The whole was so arranged as to form a hollow square, the interior of which was fitted up for public worship. And they kept coming in. And I had showed you the book, uh, Lectures on the Revival by William Sprague. And I said that there were a number of pastors that wrote in on revival that was included in the appendix at his request. And one of them was by Samuel Miller, who was a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. And he said that camp meetings began in the Presbyterian church out of a kind of necessity. In other words, these people weren't about to go home, so they set up camp. Uh, they had no other choice. They... Uh, many of them just couldn't take off in the middle of the night, and it would be there for days. So it was a kind of necessity, but later on it began to be abused. And people formed camp meetings to start revivals, which in that case a revival would be artificial. The people came in crowds to the meetings that were held to satisfy the demand for preaching on horseback and wagons on foot and remained on the ground for days and continued engaged day and night in religious services with little intermission, listening to sermons and exhortations and uniting in prayer and praise. And there were some good men that were in the area that came to the revivals that reported these things back out east that I'm so dependent upon their observations because they were very serious men. And one was a man named George Baxter and he wrote a letter to Archibald Alexander. Alexander was only 31 at the time, but soon would be the president of Hampton Sydney College and later on the first professor at Princeton, and as I said before, I was so helped by this man as a young Christian due to his work on thoughts and religious experience. But this is his report. He said, Reverend and dear sir, perhaps about the last of May or the first of June, the awakenings became general in some congregations and spread through the country in every direction with amazing rapidity. 
Now that's a picture of the stump preacher and what happened is there were just so many people that the pastor couldn't possibly be able to see over the crowd and he may only have seven pastors for 20,000 people so they would uh, down a tree to about three or four feet and the preacher would get up on top of the stump. It was the only way he could preach to the congregation and be seen so they became known as the stump preachers but Baxter said, I left that country about the 1st of November, at which time this revival in connection with the one on Cumberland had covered the whole state of Kentucky, except in a small settlement which borders on the waters of the Green River in which no Presbyterian ministers are settled. And I believe very few of any denomination. The power with which this revival is spread and its influence and moralizing the people are difficult for you to conceive and more so for me to describe. I'd heard many accounts and seen many letters respecting it before I went to that country, but my expectations, though greatly raised by these reports, were much below the reality that I saw of the work. Their congregations, when engaged in worship, presented scenes of solemnity superior superior to what I had ever seen before, and in private houses it was no uncommon thing to hear parents relate to strangers the wonderful things which God had done in their neighborhoods while a large family of young people collected round them would be in tears. On my way to Kentucky, I was informed by settlers on the road that the character of Kentucky travelers was entirely changed, and that they were now as remarkable for sobriety as they had formerly been for dissoluteness, and remember the report I gave you of what Logan County was like before McGrady got there. They had formerly been known for dissoluteness and immorality. Now listen to this sentence, and indeed I found Kentucky to appearance the most moral place I had ever seen. A profane expression was hardly ever heard. A religious awe seemed to pervade the country. Now I want to move forward. I'm going to give myself a little extra time to bring something to you about what happened in 1859 to encourage us to pray. I mean, this is, I've studied revivals 30, 35 years. I remember 1984, I had gotten Jonathan Edwards' trilogy that Banner of Truth was selling on revival. I've never read anything like this, and that's why I'm using this as an encouragement to pray. This is a revival of 1858, started in New York, continued in United Kingdom. I just got asked real quick, um, do I have one more week after this? Okay, so we'll talk about this in detail next week. It's an amazing story. This is just one account. In a book called Authentic Records of Revival, Now in Progress in the United Kingdom, 1859, and the pastor is Adam McGill, And the city is Boviva, Ireland. On the 11th of June, 1859, at a prayer meeting in Glen Conway Schoolhouse, the Lord made bare his holy arm a sight for all of the people. So let's back up. In the summer of 1856, four young men in my congregation resolved to establish a social meeting for prayer. They knew nothing about any revival that was coming. 
It, they called it the Sabbath School Teachers Prayer Meeting. Little interest was felt in this meeting for several months, yet these young men haven't felt the power of religion on their own hearts and lives, and knowing how little success they could expect as teachers and winning souls for Christ without His Spirit, continue to meet from time to time to implore a blessing on their labors and on the gospel preached. Early in the spring of 1858, tidings... They're hearing about this revival going on in Manhattan, New York, which we'll talk about next week, Lord willing. Of a great revival in America reached us. As a great awakening in New York and elsewhere was evidently an answer to prayer, and as the Spirit of God is distinctly promised to those who ask, we felt strongly induced to urge from the pulpit the necessity of additional meetings for prayer, besides the one already in existence conducted by the Sabbath school teachers. As a mark of God's blessing on this proposal, eight prayer meetings sprang up within the bounds of the congregation and were zealously conducted by young men. At these meetings, the scriptures were read and fervent prayers offered up for the minister and for the Holy Spirit to be poured upon the people. At first, these meetings were thinly attended, but gradually the interest increased. And the attendance became more numerous, and it became manifest that the Lord was blessing them, as several persons were led to the Savior through their instrumentality. Prayer meetings began to grow larger. The attendance on public worship increased. More earnestness and a deeper solemnity marked the worshipers. On the 11th of June, 1859, at a prayer meeting in Glen Conway Schoolhouse, the Lord may bear his holy arm. In a sight of all the people, a young convert from County Antrim, here we say Antrim County in Ireland, County Antrim addressed the meeting earnestly and solemnly on what the Lord had done for his soul. The people listened with deep attention, tears stole down many cheeks, hearts pent up with silent grief were ready to burst, and at the close six persons were plunged into the most heart-rending anguish I had ever witnessed. The cry of all was to the same effect. Oh, my sins, my sins, I am going to hell. Jesus, have mercy on me, one cried. Lord Jesus, have mercy on my wicked father and mother. Two young men shed tears bitterly, and with the arrow of the Lord in their souls, they went from the meeting to a graveyard. And there spent all night in wrestling with the Lord for pardon. They are now candidates for the ministry. It was thus evident the Lord was in the midst of us answering the earnest and fervent prayers for his Holy Spirit offered in the name of Christ in that very place on many a previous occasion. The following day, June 12th, was the Sabbath, a day which will never be forgotten by many in this parish. Oh, with what power and majesty Jehovah walked among us. Zechariah 12.10 was wonderfully fulfilled to us. When the usual time for public worship came, the church was so crowded that we were obliged to retire to the churchyard and conduct the services in the open air. The crowd became immense, the minister and congregation of Scriggan having joined us in a more, a more solemn assembly never met on earth. Something really must have affected this pastor to say a sentence like that. During the services, the tears and suppressed sobs of many show that it was no ordinary occasion. 
that it was the day of God's power, that the spirit of power was dealing personally with men's souls. When a benediction was pronounced, a few retired, but the great majority lingered, stood in fact as if held in a vice or bound with a chain. And in a moment as if struck with a thunderbolt, about a hundred persons were prostrated on their knees, sending forth a wail from their hearts, bro bruised, broken, and overwhelmed with horror such as will never be forgotten, and which perhaps for solemnity and all will never be surpassed until the judgment day. Oh, what must the willings of the lost in hell be when the discovery is made that when lamps are gone out that their day of mercy is past and a door of hope shut forever. So what he's seeing, what they are experiencing is so close to what the lost will feel in that day. This is really what revival is. For hours, these stricken, smitten, bleeding souls remained on their bended knees, unconscious of everything but their own guilt and danger, need of a Savior, pleading and praying with an intensity and fervor which surpasses all description. The evening of Wednesday, June 15th, was appointed for prayer, and long before the hour for commencing the service, the church was crowded. The awful sadness in every countenance told of the deep earnestness within. Even the most ungodly were overawed. And wore a solemn sadness on their faces, had a pestilence. Every sentence of this is so gripping had a pestilence swept over this entire neighborhood, leaving one dead in every house, greater awe would not have been produced. At the close of the services, several efforts were made to dismiss the congregation, but without avail. And it was not until four o'clock in the morning from a prayer meeting on Wednesday night that the people could be persuaded to go home. Multitudes were again on that night steeped in awful sorrow and stung with the most poignant remorse for sin. Such an utterable horror overwhelmed one young man that the blood streamed from his mouth and nose. Another man who all his life was a profligate had such a vivid view of the horrors of hell. And the pains of hell took such hold of him that he cried like a demoniac that a hundred devils were dragging him to the bottomless pit. For several Sabbaths, the services of the sanctuary had to give way to the sobs and cries of pure souls. And though every lawful effort was made to suppress all excitement, yet the agony and sorrow within were too great to be repressed, and frequently the audible cry broke forth for mercy. In quote, I haven't even given you the whole account. But what's my point? As I was studying this afresh, because... Uh, somehow I lost my notes, which often turns out as a good thing from uh, 2018. Um, you know, when I was in Grand Rapids in 2018, Owensboro was the furthest thing from my mind. In fact, I was starting to give some thoughts to go into Bloomfield, West Virginia. So when I'm reading the story of McGrady, I don't even know the geography down here very well. I didn't know that he retired in Henderson, Kentucky, and I wouldn't know where Henderson, Kentucky was if I had read it. But reading it again this week, it was starting to make an impression on me. So between 1800 and 1816, a few months before he died, 
his preaching didn't have quite the same effect. I mean, preaching alone does not produce revival. The Holy Spirit is the author of revival. But, he, but this is what struck me, and I shared this with Pastor DeVito. His last place that he had a camp meeting, the only description was outside of Evansville, Indiana. He hadn't experienced revival in a number of years, and he has another camp meeting right here, very close to where this church is. And God, again, came upon the congregation so much so that he got on his knees and he started praying out loud for all the people that were awakened. And he cried out that he hadn't felt this holy fire since the great revival of 1800. These things are interesting historically. But brethren, unless God visits us again, and I'm not talking about right here, I'm talking about to the numbers that were affected in Kentucky. Remember, what would the a population be around Lexington in 1801, and yet 20 to 30,000 people rode in in carriages to be part of this. But if this doesn't happen again, I don't know what's going to become of us as a nation. And I want to say this for your encouragement. I was um, so thankful to your pastor to have an opportunity to speak on this. But the result that I see happening is a new earnestness in Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Owensboro to pray for this congregation. Well, also providentially, I didn't know that we were going to spend spring break in Grand Rapids. So I went to the prayer meeting a week ago, Wednesday, and I said, please pray for the group, the church that I'm teaching at, right outside of Evansville, Indiana, that God would cause this small group to grow. And thankfully, Pastor DeVito told me that he knew Jeff Johnson and had been in his home before. So they are aware of you. And it was Pastor Jeff Johnson that pr uh, prayed to God fervently for this congregation. The history is extremely interesting but it's a revival that was behind it that is the desire of our hearts. Before I close, you, have a, you always come up with such good questions. So. Um, yeah, the, the story I'm going to bring next week, you know, I teach all these aspects of revival. I... I've never seen anything for the scope of what happened due to a young man in Manhattan deciding to have a business men's prayer meeting between 12 and 12.30 and put out the signs and say, come for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes into this old building in Manhattan. And the first day, six people showed up. The story that I have to tell you about that and what I discovered, it'll be my third time teaching on this. And I, every time, discover more and more of the effects of that meeting in Manhattan. And the story that I just told you comes from that revival. And again, the emphasis on that is that God is pleased to answer prayer 
But the thing that strikes me in James, uh, what, 5.17, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much that God is pleased when we really have a desire to seek him. When you are like Jacob and you say, I will not let you go until you bless me, or the importunate widow in Luke 18, that God wants us to cry out to him. And there is no doubt in my mind he's able to do this again in our country. And if there's ever a time that we have needed it, it is now. And with that, I'll close our Sunday school. Lord, we fear a passive resignation that things are as they have been. What's the use? They will continue to be so. We fear that. We rather want to be men like McGrady that was on his knees praying that what had happened in North Carolina and Tennessee would happen in the most worst of conditions in Logan County in Kentucky. When things were so bad, when Barton Stone came to Paris, Kentucky to take over a congregation, the county itself was called Bourbon County, and a pastor before him was released from his charges because he had become a continual drunkard. And yet revival came to these places so that you would be pleased to show us you're able to do these things no matter how things seems to be militated against it, that it doesn't depend on what we see naturally around us, but that our hope has to be in you. Store us up to pray in this way, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.